here or members or whatever don't always know about the way we function and work is that we do function and work as a team and we plan worship themes long ahead of time and it's great to have teammates who try to speak to the theme and plan music around the theme and readings around the theme so that we have a cohesive experience every Sunday morning and we hope that that's noticeable to you and my gratitude to Dave and to others who, who work at that with us. We've been working uh, this fall through um, a series of, of questions and they're questions that um, people who aren't Christians have about the Christian faith and who ask them. Uh, and uh, the same is the case for us, even though we are believers, we, we ask many of the same questions. And so we've dealt with um, like the question of what is God really like? And does God really care about us? And don't all paths lead to God, no matter what path you take. And, and then last week, Greg talked about why would we choose Christianity over all the other choices we have? Why choose Christianity? And and those are all good questions, and those are tough questions, and those are hard questions. They're questions with which maybe you have wrestled or continue to wrestle. It certainly isn't our our goal, because we think it would not be very realistic, to give answers where you say, oh, I got that answered, now I can just move on. But, But a lot of times, answering questions raises even more questions. That's what wrestling with faith is all about. But today... Uh, we're, we're going to deal with um, the question that is most asked by non-believers and believers. If you take a poll, as a lot of people have, certain churches and various communities and around the world, if you take a poll and say, you know, what's the biggest question you have about faith and about God? It's this question of, if God is good, why do bad things happen? If God is good, why do bad things happen? Why do people suffer? Why is there suffering in the world? If God is so good, why does he let it happen? A week can't pass, and hardly a day can pass, when we aren't faced with questions about suffering. I mean, certainly this this past week is an example, right? I mean, our, our television screens are filled with scenes of the devastation that has taken place because of Hurricane Matthew. And earlier in the week as I was thinking about this and watching news reports and, you know, I had a little conversation with God, which was more like me shouting at him about Haiti. Seriously, God, Haiti? I mean, why Haiti? I mean, Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, Families in Haiti have a a per capita income per year of about $1,500. They live in abject poverty. Everybody there is poor. And they had an earthquake in 2010 from which they still haven't recovered. And now a hurricane? I mean, that's suffering. I can't imagine the suffering. And then we see it wash up on shore on the eastern coast of Florida, South Carolina, southern Georgia, North Carolina. People suffering. Why? If you're such a good God, why, why do you allow that to happen? Or we hear the diagnoses of illnesses of people that we care about or know or love. We're informed about marriages that crumble and the devastation that occurs because of it. Children and adults of all ages suffer. There's just so much painful suffering in the world. It's sometimes overwhelming. And I had to do battle with myself this week because 
There was news of still yet another shooting in Chicago where someone who was innocent lost their life. And my first response was, eh, there we go again. I mean, it's become so commonplace that we almost get apathetic about it. It's just another occurrence. And, and we can't let that happen. We have to continue to do whatever we can do. It's nothing more than pray about this innocent suffering that takes place every day where people suffer in such a way that we can't imagine in a suburb because they can't even walk on their sidewalks at night or during the day because you never know what's going to happen. And this question about if God is so good, what does it allow bad things to happen? It comes from a very logical progression of thinking. So if you are a Christian or a believer and you believe that God is all-knowing, then that means that God is aware of everything that's taking place in the world. Let's give him that. And if God is not bound by time, then he can see everything coming, but he also knows how it's going to end. Let's give him that. If God is all-powerful, then he could intervene and prevent anything from happening or correct things that have happened. And if God is love, he really cares about people. But why do bad things still happen? After the tsunami several years ago in the Indian Ocean, one newspaper writer expressed his skepticism about God in this way. He said that if God is God, he's not good. And if God is good, then he's not God. You can't have it both ways, he said, especially after a catastrophe. It just does not make logical sense. And for many, suffering and bad things happening to good people are all the proof they need for the fact that God doesn't exist. Philosopher J.L. Mackle articulated that argument in this way. He said, that if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God at all might exist, but not the traditional God. And that's a very common position that people take. It's a response to suffering in the world. But when Timothy Keller addresses that kind of thinking, he says that there's a hidden assumption in those arguments. And the hidden assumption is this, that if evil appears to be pointless to us, then it must be pointless. I mean, if I can't see some purpose or some meaning, right, in the evil that takes place, then it has to be pointless because, of course, we have all wisdom and knowledge in ourselves. We can't imagine how it, it, it could ever work out for good. So many of you know that, that I spent the early part of my ministry career as a college chaplain working with college students, and probably two or three times every week, a student would come in to talk uh, about a devastating thing that had happened, and they were in great pain and suffering, lots of tears and crying, because their latest romantic uh, relationship had broken apart, fallen apart. And so they, you know, there was lots of tears and hankies and weeping, and that was just the football players. The other people were coming in to talk about this stuff. But, you know, and, and you have to take it seriously, right? I mean, I'm the college chaplain, so they're coming in, and, 
and you're sympathetic and you want to pat them on the back and you give them Kleenex and they cry. And it's, it, it, I mean, there is a lot of suffering when romantic things kind of dissolve, regardless of what your age is. Um, but every time, every time I'd listen to one of those conversations, in the back of my head there was another conversation going on, because I am ADD, that said, you know what, in a couple of weeks you're going to introduce me to your newest romantic relationship. And it's going to be okay. And I'll bet you a dollar on a dime you'll say, man, I am so glad that we broke up before because this is the best thing that ever happened. I can't imagine why it would be wonderful. But in the moment, their suffering seemed pointless. They couldn't imagine what good could come out of that. Some of us have lost jobs that we've had for years. We never would have left under our own volition, but for whatever reason, business goes south or management changes or ideas are different or the economy goes bad and we lose that job and we're devastated because that's all we've ever done and we love that job. We can't imagine doing anything else. It seems so pointless to have to suffer in that way. And then you get another job and it's the best thing that ever happened to you. You would have never done it on your own. The story of pointless suffering that stands out the most in the Bible, might not be Job, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but it might be Joseph, right? So Joseph is the youngest of a bunch of brothers, and um, he's really kind of innocent. I mean, let's face it. If you read the story of Joseph, the first opinion you have of him is he's kind of a spoiled brat, which is why he kind of suffers from his older brothers. And, and in such a way that they hate him. They decide that they're going to kill Joseph. And one brother intervenes with grace and mercy and says, well, let's not kill him. Um, let's do the next best thing for us. Let's just sell him into slavery. So they sell their brother Joseph into slavery. That's, I mean, if you're Joseph, my guess is you'd think that's suffering, right? Pointless suffering. What good is going to come of this? So he's sold into slavery. He's taken. He's put on the slave market. He's bought by a guy named Potiphar. He serves in Potiphar's house as a very faithful and loyal, loyal servant. And then he's falsely accused of a crime that he never committed, and he's sent to prison. That is pointless suffering. That makes no sense whatsoever. And while he's in prison, he meets a couple of servants of Pharaoh who are also in prison, and they have these dreams, and he interprets these dreams. And that seems kind of pointless that, well, until those uh, servants are released and they go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh has a dream and Joseph is released because he can kind of interpret that dream. And then Joseph rises to become second in command of all of Egypt. He does everything for Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't have to do much because Joseph does everything. And then we begin to see that Joseph's suffering really wasn't pointless. Because as it turns out, his family is starving. And the only place they can get food is Egypt. But you've got to have some kind of connection to get hooked up with food in Egypt. And they didn't know. They went. And when they first met Joseph, they weren't really even sure who he was until he told them. And all that suffering that Joseph endured early on suddenly begins to have a point. But in the moment, in the moment, our suffering seems pointless. C.S. Lewis wrestled with suffering, believing at one point that all suffering was unjust, 
until he asked himself the question. He said, well, where did I get this idea of what's just and unjust from? Where did that come from? I mean, at that point, atheism didn't make any sense to C.S. Lewis because just and unjust had to have some kind of origin. It had to come from somewhere. And the only logical explanation in his mind was that it must come from God. And that was the turning point in C.S. Lewis' life. Philosopher Alvin Plantigan writes about this logical explanation or this logical disbelief in God this way. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, are obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus no way to say that there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think that there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, and not just an illusion of some sort, which some people think, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. God exists. But so does suffering. I mean, the Christian position on suffering um, states that, you know, when God created the world, he created it perfect. And he put human beings in the perfect situation. If you read the creation story in Genesis, every time God creates something, he pronounces it good. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And everything was good. He created human beings, and it was good. And he gave us as human beings the opportunity to, to make choices. To make good choices. There was no suffering. There was no disease. There were no problems in the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve wanted something more than perfect. I mean, we inherit that as human beings. We're never really satisfied, are we, as humans, with what we have? We always want something more, something different, something better. Adam and Eve had perfect. Yeah, but they wanted something more and better. And so they became disobedient. And in that disobedience... Evil enters into the world and suffering begins. And the Apostle Paul writes about it this way. He says, the whole creation, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And so, and so some of, one of the ways that we explain this whole thing is that, 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 that when Adam and Eve sinned and evil entered into the world and into human beings, um, a harmonious relationship became disharmony, Right? So now there's disharmony between God and man. There's this big chasm that didn't exist that now exists because of what we've done. That only can be bridged by Jesus Christ, which is part of the end of the story. And there's a gigantic chasm that starts to exist between human beings, between man and man, between God and man, and not between man and man. We don't all get along that well, which is why we have different sections of the sanctuary. And there enters into the world this whole disharmony between man and nature. Which is where we get natural disasters and disease and illness. Paul says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man 
and death entered the world through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all of us have sinned. So if you want perspective on suffering, read the book of Job. If you've ever think you've suffered in your life, read Job chapter 1. Job is a very wealthy businessman who has a perfect life. You know, he's got flocks of camels and sheep and cows and everything, and all in different places, and he's got managers for all of them, so he runs a big empire. He's a very wealthy guy. He's got a very, um, very close-knit family. Seven sons, three daughters, they get together all the time. They love each other. They spend time with each other. They enjoy each other. The sons work in the family business. It's one big happy group. And everything is going great for Job until in one day, we are told, one day, a messenger comes to Job and says, Oh man, something terrible has happened. Somebody came and raided our, our flocks and they've, they've taken everything away and, and they're all gone. And then another one, before they could even get that one resolved, another person came and said, oh, by the way, uh, you know, you're not going to believe what happened. You know, there was this natural disaster and it burned everything up and that's all gone. And then another one came and said, somebody else came and raided our camels and now our camels are gone. And before they could even get that resolved, another person came and said, by the way, you're not going to imagine what happened. A tornado came and wiped out your entire family. All your sons and daughters and all their family are gone. That's suffering. You lose everything. Your business, your source of income, everything you've built in life, and most tragically, your entire family. And from that point on, Job wrestles with his suffering. And his friends try to help him. They ask questions like, why? Why did this happen? But have you ever noticed that the question why has a question behind the question? The question why is usually the first question we ask. But what's really behind that question is who's responsible for this? I mean, if there is a shooting in the city and they start to analyze why, somebody can give you an answer why. But what they really want to do is say, oh, this, this group was responsible for it, or that group was responsible for it, or this is why it happened. There's lots of devastation along the east coast of Florida. And you can guess, people will say, why did it happen? But now you're going to find out in a few weeks, well, you know, they didn't enforce the building codes, and some people live there where they shouldn't, and they didn't have insurance, and all sorts of So they're going to find out who's responsible. We like to know who's responsible. So Job's friends asked why, but they wanted to really say, well, you know who's responsible for this, don't you? (laughs) After a while, one of his friends said, consider now who, being innocent, have ever perished. And his other friend came along and said, well, all his days the wicked man suffers in torment. What they were saying was, hey, Job, the reason this happened to you, he says, you did something to make God angry. And these are the consequences because of what you did. You're only suffering because some behavior, some attitude, something that happened in your life. And God is making you suffer those consequences. 
when you read the book of Job, maybe it's just me, I'm a little weird. That's not very revealing, but you kind of sit in the background and you go, how is God listening to all this conversation? What does he think about Job and about his friends and about all their explanations? And, and, and part of the reason I think I think that way because sometimes I, I think as a pastor, what does God think about what I say about him? And God eventually, I think, gets fed up. We're kind of listening to all this philosophy and theology and all the things that his friends are bringing, all of the, the ideas that they have. And what Job's friends really bring to him is what we would call pious platitudes. And, and, and we do that a lot when we don't know what to say to somebody who's suffering and don't know the difficulty. We have some kind of pious platitude. It'll be okay. You need to have more faith. God will have, well, You know, all of that stuff it just ends up kind of being kind of empty after a while. And in the end, Job demands an explanation from God. You need to explain this to me. And God responds, seriously, Job? You want to bring my ways into question? Where were you, Job, when I created the universe? Can you explain where light came from? Or how the day and night came into existence. Can you explain any of those things? And as he engages in that prayer and conversation with God, Job concludes that God stands alone. How can I oppose him? He he does whatever he pleases. God doesn't owe Job or us any explanation of how he works or what he does or how it all comes into being. And if he gave us an explanation, we probably wouldn't understand it. I mean, a lot of people in the Bible, when you read their stories, they ask why it happened, and God rarely answers. And then when God does answer why it happened, no one likes the answer. (laughs) Because a lot of times it says, well, it happened because you did this. Frederick Buechner once wrote that for God to try and explain the kinds of things that Job wants explained would be like Einstein explaining relativity to a little neck clam. That's Frederick Buechner's way of saying what Isaiah said when he said, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And I mean, you just can't think like God or what the Apostle Paul wrote where for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face that we just will never really get it. And writing about suffering, Philip Yancey once wrote that maybe sometimes God keeps us in the dark about why. Not so much because he wants to keep us in the dark, as, as he knows that we are incapable of absorbing so much light. God's answer to Job about the why of suffering is not about suffering. It's about Job. He reminds Job and he reminds us through Job's story of who we are and who God is and how we're meant to relate to one another. So there you have it, a philosophical and theological explanation of why suffering exists in the world and what we're supposed to do with it and how we're supposed to face it. I mean, it's all logical, it all makes sense, at least it does to me. 
But my guess is that this logical, philosophical, theological explanation about suffering leaves you all just a little bit empty. You see, because what we really want and what we really need is not a logical explanation or even a theological understanding. When we're struggling with loss, when someone dies too early, when someone receives a horrible diagnosis, when someone's business fails or dementia strikes, or a logic and an explanation aren't really that helpful. They kind of leave us a bit empty. Because we need something more and we need something different. Becky spent most of her career working with children who had special needs. And some of the most difficult moments that she had in that career were not with the kids, but were with the parents. Walking with the parents down that road of what it needs to have a special need child. And reconciling special needs children with a loving God requires mental gymnastics that most of us do not possess. But what you find out is that parents don't really need explanations. They don't need logical thoughts. It's not really going to change anything or make that much difference. What they need is compassion and caring and companionship, someone to walk alongside of them. I mean, isn't that what happens when, happens when someone close to us dies? I mean, we can be lifetime Christ followers. We can know all the theological truths. God is sovereign. God is loving. God is in charge. God is just. We can know that we die to this world and we're going to go on to eternal life. But knowing all that stuff doesn't take away the pain or the sense of loss or the sense of grief. People don't care how right an answer is until they experience how loving an answer feels. When we face suffering, we need compassion and a companion. And God doesn't give Job an explanation, but he does give him himself. And if anyone understands our suffering, it's God. I mean, God sent his only son to live among us. Jesus was the only perfect person who ever lived. He did nothing to deserve what he received from human beings. He suffered and died a painful death on a cross, which was enough suffering for anybody to have to endure until in that moment on the cross, he endured a suffering that you and I will never know. Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced complete separation from God, the absence of God. No general grace, no mercy, no forgiveness. And none of us will ever know that level of suffering.
because of Christ's experience of suffering. God knows all about suffering. And he can have true compassion with us. But in addition to compassion, we also need a companion, someone to walk with us, someone to hold us, someone to at times even carry us. When we experience suffering in our life, it's a natural inclination to isolate ourselves from people because we can't imagine how anybody would understand what we're going through. Nor can we imagine how anybody would want to spend time with us because there's so much grief in our life that it's overwhelming to them. And so we tend to isolate. Lisa has spearheaded a new ministry here at church called Grief Share. And two of the women who are co-leaders with her in this ministry had their husbands die at a very young age. They know all about tragedy and grief and loss and suffering. And for the last several weeks, 10 to 15 people have met with them who've experienced devastating loss and grief in their own life. And it's nice to have logical explanations and to talk philosophically about what happens in life. But what they really need in that group and what they get is compassion. Other people who understand what they've been going through and what they really need are companions that will walk alongside them in the midst of their sorrow. If God is good, why does he allow bad things to happen? I mean, I know the answer. I could give you a very logical answer in a very short period of time. But more importantly, we know that God doesn't abandon us in our suffering. So if you've worshipped here for any number of years, um, since I've been here as pastor, you've heard me tell the story of my college friend, Jerry Sitzer. Um, you know, Jerry is a, is a professor of church history at Whitworth College out in, uh, in Washington. We were college fraternity brothers, uh, both very angelic, diligent students. Well, okay, Jerry was. Very bright guy. But one day, he was with his family in their minivan um, out in Washington. And um, as they were coming home from an outing, a drunk driver crossed the center line hit their minivan head on, and in that moment, Jerry lost his wife and his mother and one of his daughters. Two children survived the accident, both pretty severely injured. And Jerry was thrown into a dark moment in his life that I, I can't even imagine how you'd ever cope with this, right? I mean. Not only did he lose his wife and his mother and a daughter all at once in a moment, but now he's got these two other kids that he's got to take care of that are in the hospital that need somebody to be there for them as well. And it's not like you can quit being a professor any longer. You've got to still go to work. And how is all this going to happen? And a few years after the accident, after he'd had some time to process things, um, he wrote a book entitled A Grief Observed. And um, a lot of people say it's the best book on grief ever written. I've said that. You know, I have some personal biases, but 
Rick Warren and his wife found it to be the best book they ever read when their son committed suicide. Others say the same thing. And I think what makes it so good is that, that Jerry doesn't give any easy or simple theological or philosophical answers. He, he walks you through the pain and the suffering and all the experiences that he had. And in, in that book, he shares one experience that took place in the process that was healing for him. He always talked about the grief as kind of being this gigantic cliff that, that hangs over. And even in the sunshine, you're always in the darkness of this cliff. It never really goes away. And one night he couldn't sleep, which was very common as he was going through this experience. And he, he couldn't sleep and had what he called a waking dream, you know, a vision, a waking dream. And in that dream, he says, God did not give me an answer to the question of why the accident happened in the first place. Nor did this waking dream convince me that it was good. It did not erase my grief, nor did it make me happy. But it did give me a measure of peace. From that point on, I began in small ways at least to believe that God's sovereignty was a blessing and not a curse. The cliff still towers above me. But now it gives me security. And it fills me with awe. In this world, we will suffer. But our God is a God of compassion, and he will always be our companion. Will you pray with me, please? God in heaven, we will be honest to say that life is hard, and that too often our faith is weak. We think we want simple and short, concise answers to all the tough questions of life. But they're tough questions because there aren't any of those kinds of answers. And so, Lord, we simply say to you today, thank you for being one who tries to help us sort out these issues, but most importantly, who walks alongside of us every day at all times. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we're going to continue to worship now uh, by expressing our gratitude to God for all his good gifts to us with our tithes and offerings. And as we worship, uh, we're going to continue to think and pray about the issues of life um, as the band plays music in that regard. Let us continue to worship God.